preach this morning on the gift of tongues. I originally intended to do that in three sermons, but uh, so we just did it all in one because I didn't have time to uh, mess up my September schedule. So we just plowed through it. Darren uh, threatened to sing over a thousand tongues to sing this morning just to (laughs) mess up our theology a little bit. But tonight's going to be very different in feel and in tone. I want to have you turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. I'd like to talk to you tonight about the faithfulness of God and the fact that he receives humble confession. We looked at this text last week, but I said we would slow down and examine this prayer of Ezra. And just to understand the historical situation, to be reminded of that, we, you recall that Ezra was horrified by the news that the exiles who had returned to Babylon from Babylon, rather, under Persian control in the past decades, that their descendants were now intermarrying with the foreign peoples all around them. This is threatening Israel, first of all, from the inside, that they're weakening their claim to be descended from Abraham by having children with foreign women, and it was threatening Israel from the outside, from the coming judgment of God once again. He had already shown them such mercy by bringing them back to the land, and Ezra was immediately convinced that the judgment of God was coming. Now, you recall that we made the case from Malachi chapter 2 last week that not only had the the list of men given in most of here in Ezra 10 married foreign wives, Malachi 2 indicates they had also wrongfully divorced the wives of their youth. This was treacherous. This was shocking that they would do this. And so Ezra, the spiritual leader of Israel, sent just a few months earlier from Babylon to come lead God's people and shepherd them in the word of God. He's appalled at this revelation. He's shocked. This revelation of the heinous sin of God's people to violate their privileged status as God's chosen and purified people. And worse, chapter 9, verse 2 says that the leaders were the ones leading the way. So, of course, the people can't do anything about this. Now, last time we read briefly through Ezra's prayer of confession, which begins in verse 6. But this prayer stands as really one of the most amazing prayers in all the Bible, but particularly one of the most amazing prayers of confession. Ezra makes no request of God. He demonstrates other humility and acknowledges his total guilt in representing the people of God. Now, just a couple of preliminary thoughts to help guide us tonight. First of all, I want to be clear that this is not a confession of an individual seeking salvation. That's not the point of this prayer. It's the confession of a true, genuine worshiper of God representing Israel before God. And it's really example, an example of intercession as well. And so Ezra identifies with God's people, although he's not personally been unfaithful to God, He begins his prayer, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. Something else to consider. Really, I'm just telling you up front what my major goal for tonight is. is The major lesson you ought to take away from tonight is that confession of sin is to be a regular part of your walk with the Lord. And I think in our day and age, it is not. And so Ezra provides us with a high-level and sobering example of confession of sin. And of course, we want to balance this, so let me say this up front. Yes, of course, Romans 8.1 says that if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. 
That doesn't mean, however, that you just get a free pass to act however you want because your salvation is secure. Keep in mind also Jesus' illustration of foot washing in John chapter 13 when he told Peter that the whole body doesn't need to be washed. Metaphorically, the, the whole soul of the Christian, just the feet. Meaning that the believer in Christ is clean before God judicially, but day by day, sins metaphorically stick to your feet where you walk, as it were. And they need to be cleaned. And this is not for salvation. This is for fellowship. Keep in mind also that judicially before God, legally, Psalm 103 says that your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. We get that. But experientially, you haven't stopped sinning yet. And when you do sin, then confession is in order. And so tonight, I'd like to be as devotional as we can and, and really have every one of us examine our own hearts before the Lord. I'd like to walk through four important properties or attributes of a prayer of confession so that our prayers of confession can be on par with Ezra's, this divinely inspired record of prayer. One of the great things about prayers in the Bible is that you know they're correct. You know that they are right. Four properties of prayer of confession. First property of confession, the preparation for confession. The preparation for confession. We're not going to get to the prayer quite yet because there's a preparation that happens. Ezra characterizes himself as representing the sin of the Jews. And so we'll stop making that distinction for the sake of time. He didn't commit this sin, but he's confessing as if he did. And so we're going to leave him in that category. That's how we'll view his prayer. And here's what we need to understand up front. Ezra did not, he did not send up a quick prayer of, whoops, sorry about that, Lord. As a matter of fact, he didn't even begin confessing right away. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. He's just received the news of the, the many Jews, many dozens of men being faithless. In verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And you recall from last time the seriousness of this grief. He was doing what you did when someone close to you has died suddenly. This is serious grief. And you remember that he sat appalled. It means desolate or empty. He's just in shock. And this even gathered a crowd around him in fear and in sorrow. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Has your preparation to confess sin been so obvious that your family has kind of come around you and said, what are you doing? That's what's happening here. He's gathering a crowd. Ezra was sitting there, not eating, likely not drinking. But was there a purpose to this? Why was he just sitting there until the evening sacrifice? Well, the context would indicate to us that Ezra is preparing to pray. He was putting his heart in order, in order to approach the true and living God and to do so with fear and with propriety and humility. And I know that sounds foreign to us, that we automatically think in our hearts, that, well, we should just run to prayer immediately. That's not what he did. He did just the opposite. In fact, verse 5 even highlights that Ezra is approaching God with all possible humiliation and self-degradation. Verse 5, and at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands 
to the Lord my God, saying. He begins praying at the same time as the evening sacrifice, about 3 p.m. The sacrifice is being offered to the Lord. This is no coincidence that he begins prayer at that time. He's been fasting all day long in total focus, total self-denial. He has outwardly shown his grief at sin with his torn clothing. He's fallen on his knees. What is that? That's a position of total surrender, total helplessness. It's what a conquered enemy did before the conquering king. He got on his knees. And he spread out his hands to God in total need and in emptiness. This is not a a happy, charismatic doing this during a happy song. This is spreading out my hands. Lord, are you going to kill me? This is astounding what he did. Ezra took the better part of an entire day preparing to pray. He hadn't even started praying yet. This flies in the face of the contemporary Christian model of prayer that's informal, that's overly familiar, and at times forgetful of precisely who we are addressing. And as we go through Ezra's prayer, you most definitely get a sense of nervousness, a sense of fear, a sense of the expectation of rightly deserved discipline from the Lord. There's two examples for us when it comes to this prayer of confession his preparation. The first example, Ezra didn't take this lightly. That's very clear. This was a sober and serious and fearsome occasion for him. And I think we should balance the security of our salvation with the fact that just because you can't lose your salvation in Christ doesn't mean you lose your fear of God. If anything, the grace of God to save you should increase your fear of God and increase your fear of throwing his grace back in his face, so to speak. In fact, we'll see later that this is a major reason for Ezra's seriousness, that he accepts that the Jews have flaunted and paraded the grace of God. They've paraded the kindness of God with lack of gratitude. It reminds us of Paul's question to the Roman Christians in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul answers his own question, by no means. The implied opposite is because of grace, we should have more fear of God. We should have more desire to obey. This prayer of confession was not light. It was not quick. It had an air of seriousness and heaviness to it. There's no smile. There's no informality. He's not trying to lighten the mood. He's not saying, hey, Jesus, I'm so glad you always forgive me. That's so good. He's not being informal. He's not being overly familiar. Ezra approaches God as if he's in the very courts of heaven and confessing sin at the throne of God. I'm confident that you confess sin. But do you ever do it publicly? This is the air with which he's doing this, as if he's standing in heaven before all the angels and all the saints about to represent a sinful nation that has flaunted the grace of Christ, the grace of God. It's not light, it's not quick. I would urge all of you, I would urge myself to take a much more sober and serious approach to confession, to not cheapen the grace of God that by presuming that just because you're enjoying His grace and salvation, that somehow sin isn't serious to Him. We'll come back to that in a moment. It's just a second example for us here with Ezra. Ezra made a careful and thought-out plan for his prayer. 
This was not spontaneous, and there's two ways we know this. First of all, he prayed precisely at the time of the evening sacrifice. This was clearly his intention, to time his prayer with sacrifices being offered to God. The second way we know this, as we'll see in a few minutes, this prayer comes in four very clear sections, each of those sections with a very prevailing singular thought presented in poetic, thought-out words. This was not a spontaneous prayer. This was planned. This prayer was thought out. It was contemplated. Ezra clearly had in his mind what he wanted to say to the Lord. You can relate to this. Many of you, when you need to have a difficult conversation with someone, you might even write out a few notes of what you'd like to say so that you can be precise, so that you can be clear. You don't want to miss a detail. What about being that thought out in prayer? What about taking time to go before the Lord? Now, our belief in the all-knowing nature of God, the omniscience of God, I think sometimes prevents us from doing this. Well, he knows what I'm going to say anyway. But wouldn't it be nice for God to see that sort of effort? For God to see that you thought out your confession. That's a clear example here from Ezra. And I know we can fall back on Romans 8.26, which is true that the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groans too deep for words. But maybe you and I ought to work harder in truly thinking through what ought to be said to the Lord. How about not making the Holy Spirit do all the work on your behalf, but perhaps you putting forth the effort? This is astounding to me, and this alone was worth this passage for me, that the first property of confession is the preparation for confession, preparing the heart. It's the second property of confession. We'll call this one the detail of confession. The detail of confession. This prayer divides into four parts very clearly. Again, I'll get to that in a few minutes. For the moment, I just want you to see the precision, the detail, the minute attention to every little part of Ezra's prayer. And we're just going to walk through it together. Verse 6. Saying. And I have to stop right there. Because even the announcement of the beginning of Ezra's prayer, saying, this is a verb form that, that can express a wish or an exhortation of some sort or a sense of resolve and determination. And that's the sense that Ezra begins his prayer in this case. It's with resolve. It's a, it's a determination. It's a plan. This is not spontaneous. Ezra establishes his solidarity and identification with the sinful people. He doesn't say, God, look at what those people have done. He says, look what we have done. And so saying, oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Ezra begins with shock in Hebrew. It's just my God. This is not the disgusting worldly OMG. This is immediately expressing up front that God has graciously been Ezra's God, the God of the Jews, and yet they've thrown that back at him by marrying women, bringing their wicked idolatry with them into the homes of the very families of Israel. And he says, I am ashamed. It's a word that means disgraced. And specifically, it means I have failed proper expectations. I'm ashamed. He says, I blush to lift my face to you, I'm embarrassed, I'm wounded, I'm humiliated. I can't even bring myself to look at you. I can't look you in the face, as it were. 
And again he says, I am, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you. My God, again. Now with Ezra's perception of just how terrible the sin is, now he pictures being buried in this sin. It's over his head. It's under, he's underwater. And guilt, his indebtedness to God, is piled up past the moon, is piled up past the sun, piled up past the stars. That, that's an ancient way of saying it's an unpayable debt. It's a mountain of debt. Verse 7, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to other shame as it is today. Ezra is saying that from the days of the original exile, going really all the way back to at least 605 B.C., when the first major raid against Jerusalem happened by Nebuchadnezzar, that's 150 years earlier. Going back that far, Israel's, Israel's guilt has been with them. God has punished them. God has disciplined them, and, and rightly so, giving the Jews over to foreign kings. And he says, as it is today. Now, I want you to remember, almost all the Jews are still back in Babylon. They're still under Persian control. And even the Jews here in and, and just a little ways around Jerusalem, they're still really under Persian rule. We saw that at the return of Ezra, he had to have letters from the king giving them permission to do what he wanted to do. That they're still overall in a state of other shame. God's chosen nation relying on the permission of a pagan king to do anything. Verse 8, but now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. But now, after 150 years of shame, just a, a brief moment of relief. Since the decree of Cyrus 80 years earlier, for a brief moment, Israel had some hope. Now, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the end for Israel as a nation, the failure of King Solomon at the end of his reign which spiritually set up the nation to split in two under his son Rehoboam. Now that takes Israel's problem back. You ready for this? 500 years. So a, a few decades is just a brief moment. It's, it's a little relief. And by the way, it was just 20 years before this prayer, 20 years earlier, that back in the Persian Empire, the Jews had narrowly escaped total annihilation as recorded in the book of Esther. That if the decree which King Ahasuerus had been tricked into making against the Jews, in which all Jews could be killed, if that decree had worked without God's intervention through Queen Esther, it's not just the Jews in Babylonia would have been slaughtered, it's that Jews everywhere in the Persian Empire would have been killed. And so Ezra is acknowledging that God has been gracious. He's been kind for this brief time. But how quick and fleeting the nature of relief, it's likely to be lost now. In fact, he says that God was gracious to leave us a remnant. He says to give us a secure hold within his holy place. A secure hold, literally a peg. A peg you put in the wall. It's something you could hang something up in safety. That's what the peg represents. This is a metaphor which our English Standard Version doesn't quite pick up. The Legacy Standard Bible says 
in verse 9, but now for a moment, or verse 8 rather, but now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from Yahweh our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our slavery. That God has been so very gracious to them that, that they at least have a peg. They have one little place to be hung in safety. Verse 9 begins, For we are slaves. For we are slaves. The implication is that they should be so very grateful what He's given back to many of them. Tens of thousands of them now living back at home, living in their own land. And He outlines this kindness of God in verse 9. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. We get another metaphor here. The English Standard Version I just read says to give us protection. That's a metaphor. The Legacy Standard Bible reveals the metaphor. It's the picture of a wall. To give us a wall is what it says literally. LSB says, For we are slaves, yet in our slavery our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us before the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God. Here it is, to restore its waste places and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, a little key phrase here in Judea or in Judah and Jerusalem. This is not speaking metaphorically of a city wall. It's a specific word that means a loose stone fence. Why does that make a difference? Who cares? It makes a difference because you didn't put a loose stone fence around a city, did you? Because all invaders would have to do is move the stones or leap over it. Where did you put a loose stone fence? You put it around your vineyards. You put it around your your house. You put it around your farms. It's a picture of pastoral peacefulness and and joy out in the countryside. And so it's not a wall of protection as the ESV interprets it. It's a wall of home. It's a wall of vineyards, a wall of joy, the countryside. And that tells us that in this context, when the text speaks of the house of our God, that's not just specifically the temple, but the family of God. The house, the family of God back in her home. And so Ezra details just how gracious God has been. And yet, how have the Jews responded? And what can they say to God after this heinous sin? That's the question Ezra asks on their behalf. Verse 10, And now... Oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Ezra begins with the general confession. We have forsaken your commandments. And he rightly says, what can we possibly say when our response to your kindness, to your mercy, to your grace, to give us this reprieve from our well-deserved decades and decades and decades, potentially going back 500 years of well-deserved discipline, when our response is to be spiritually adulterous, to be unfaithful, what can we say? But it's not enough for Ezra to merely say, we have forsaken your commands, amen. It's not what he says. That's just the opening to his prayer. Now he goes into detail. Verse 11, for we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying... 
The land that you are entering to take possession of it, a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. We'll stop right there for a moment. You notice that Ezra says this command has been given through the prophets. The statement here in verse 11, and we'll see in verse 12, is a summary statement of what many, many different prophets have said, going all the way back to Moses. That's a thousand years earlier. If you, as a parent, have ever said to one of your children, I've been telling you this for a thousand years, in this case, it's actually true. The Old Testament prophets are filled with warnings against idolatry all over the place. And idolatry was always most easily fallen into when intermingled with sexual immorality and intermarriage. You recall the wicked king Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. He married a foreign idolatrous queen, a a woman who was literally the daughter of a a pagan uh, priest, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Canaanite people of Sidon. He was a priest of the goddess Ashtoreth. King Ahab marries this daughter, and you know her name. Nobody's ever named a daughter after her, Jezebel. It was her influence that led to nationwide idolatry in the time of Elijah. And so Ezra says to God, you've warned us repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly about the land we're entering. But then he gets even more specific about what the prophets continually warn them about in verse 12. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Long has God said that peaceful and prosperous dwelling in the land is contingent on covenant faithfulness. He has always said that, literally for a thousand years. And so Ezra summarizes God's words through the prophets for the past millennium. Two things about these wicked people around them. Don't mix with them in marriage. Thousand years of warnings. And never seek their peace or prosperity. Now what does he mean by that? Does he mean you need to treat them badly? That's not what he means at all. Never seek their peace or prosperity. It, It meant don't be more concerned with pleasing them than you are with pleasing me. Or as we would put it in New Testament terms. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Then the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And I want to just give kind of an extended illustration of what was happening here. It's something we're all familiar with and we watch with disgust. That even in evangelicalism, just in the past few years, there's been a huge push to please unbelievers, to make them happy, putting forward a a radical woke agenda of trying to repent as a people of things done by past generations. That that's what we're called to do. That we're supposed to repent to the world somehow. Well, first of all, it isn't repentance to God. I can only repent to God because only God is holy. I can only repent to God of sins I've personally committed. Now, yes, Ezra is here representing God's people, but that's for a specific redemptive purpose. And you recall from chapter 10 that an investigation was going to happen into precisely who had actually committed these sins. 
who actually did marry foreign wives. But woke ideology is a religion. It is totally incompatible with the gospel. You cannot mix it. It is oil and water. It's milk and orange juice. They don't go together. The woke so-called repentance being called for even among evangelicals is nothing more than an attempt to seek the peace and prosperity of a wicked ideology in all the people who believe it. And you say, well, that would never happen in the churches. It is happening in the churches and it's happening in seminaries. Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Texas is an institution with a long and distinguished history of training pastors, of, of training in expository preaching and doing some great uh, scholarly work in Bible study. They recently have supported one of their professors calling on white pastors who are graduating from the institution to not take pastoral positions until enough pastors of color have been able to do so. This is a worldly and a godless idea with no support in Scripture, literally saying that men who are trained should not go become pastors until something happens that who knows who's going to measure that. When one of their most distinguished faculty, a well-published scholar, a faithful man, a professor in the areas of both theology and expository preaching criticized this, he was fired. Protecting a woke ideology protecting the peace and prosperity of the world. In what insane universe has God ever said that the pathway to righteousness is to please godless people? And yet that's precisely here what the Jews had done. Trying to keep peoples around them happy. Why did you intermarry with peoples around you? There was a really pragmatic reason. It's so they wouldn't attack you. It's so that you wouldn't go to war. It was a way to protect yourself that, that, hey, this chieftain over here, if my son marries his daughter, then we're not going to go to war because we share grandkids. But they compromised their love and their obedience to the Lord. Look with me at verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? Ezra acknowledges that even the difficult punishment of exile and humiliation was, was less than they deserved. That God has graciously given a remnant to restart the nation in their homeland. And yet they'd broken the same commandments again. And so Ezra's acknowledging here that if God completely consumed them as a people, it would be understandable. As a parent, you might say it this way, don't you ever learn? And he closes out his prayer in verse 15, O Yahweh, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. He gives a final acknowledgement that there's no defense, there's no argument, that God is just, and the Jews have acted unjustly. You see that this is not a three-second, I'm sorry I sinned against you, God, amen. Ezra gives a general confession followed by a detailed confession of exactly what the Jews had done and the fact that they had violated God's commands and their idolatry 
They're in their marriage and trying to please the world. So what's the difference between an unthought-out and a well-thought-out confession? Let's say that you're a parent and you're struggling with the bad habit, the sinful habit of, of being harsh with your children. That we're called not to do in Ephesians 6. There's a big difference between saying, God, I'm sorry I sinned against you, amen, and saying, my God, the God who has loved me and saved me by your grace and goodness through Christ, your word clearly commands me to not exasperate and frustrate my children. I'm commanded to be careful with my tongue and to speak words that edify, not that tear down. But I've been screaming and yelling at my children I have frustrated this one. I have been angry with this one. And I have been verbally abusive with this one. I have frustrated them and treated them badly when you and your grace have never done that with me. And although scripture has countless commands against the sinful use of my tongue, I have ignored those commands. And I made a conscious choice to sin against you. That although I am filled with the Spirit of God, I am indwelt by the Spirit, and I have the Word of God, I have the commands of God, I shunned all of that and I decided in that moment that I knew best and that my sin was in control. That's a bit more of a confession, wouldn't you agree? It is detailed. It's the third property of confession. We'll call this the heart of confession. The heart of confession. What is the basic message? What is the core idea behind confession? Here's the core idea. I can give it to you in two words. Covenant disloyalty. That's the core idea behind confession. Covenant disloyalty of not returning loving obedience to God, which he deserves, while still enjoying the mercies of being in a covenant relationship with God. I want to give you a four-part statement that expresses this covenant disloyalty. This is the heart of confession. This is what confession really is. Here's a four-part statement, and I'll keep it short. Number one, I am fully guilty. I am fully guilty. And I'll repeat this. Number two, I deserve your discipline. I deserve your discipline. Number three, I have been loyal to sin. I have been loyal to sin. And number four, I have been disloyal to you. I've been disloyal to you. This is the heart of confession. I am fully guilty. I deserve your discipline. I have been loyal to sin. I have been disloyal to you. This prayer of Ezra is clearly divided into four sections, and each section identifies a central idea. And in fact, it does so through its literary structure, the way it's structured in Hebrew. Very definitely, three out of the four of these sections have a clear, what we call, chiastic structure. It's a concentric structure where there's a mirror image from beginning to end, that the parts at the beginning mirror the parts at the end, and the parts in the middle mirror the parts in the middle, and then you get to a center. And the center is always the main idea in this sort of structure. Part one is found in verses six and seven. It begins in verse six, I am ashamed. It ends at the end of verse 7, speaking of utter shame. These are the mirror image sections, typical of a chiastic structure. Then, verse 6 speaks of our iniquities. The middle of verse 7, Israel has been punished for our iniquities. So what's in the middle? What's in the very middle of verses 6 and 7? Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. We have been in great guilt. So what's the main idea? I am fully guilty. I am fully guilty. Part two is found in verses eight and nine. 
Verse 8 gives a metaphor. You remember the peg, the secure hold? And verse 9 ends with a metaphor. The wall, the protection in Judea and Jerusalem. That's the first mirror image section. As you move inward toward this outline, verse 8 speaks of God giving a little reviving, a time of relief. The middle of verse 9 speaks of God granting some reviving. Again, the mirror image. Then the end of verse 8 speaks of our slavery. And the second sentence in verse 9 speaks of our slavery. So you have the metaphors of security, a little reviving, and our slavery. What's in the very middle? Verse 9, for we are slaves. The main idea is, I deserve your discipline. We deserve to be slaves. I deserve your discipline. Ezra never even hints that being placed slave-like under the authority of the Persians was anything less than just. Part 3 is found in verses 10 through 12. It's a little fuzzier in terms of structure, but the simple structure can be derived. Verse 10 speaks of the commandments of God forsaken, and verse 12 speaks of the commandments of God given. The commandments of God forsaken, the commandments of God given. That's the mirror. And what's in the middle? Verse 11 the impure people that Israel is not to be loyal to, to not seek their peace and prosperity. What's the main idea? I have been loyal to sin. And then part four is found in verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, the result of this great guilt is punishment. And verse 15 ends with the prayer, because of this, the results are guilt. Verse 13 then asks if God's anger will destroy the remnant in the middle of verse 15. References God's grace in giving a remnant. So you have remnant and remnant. And what's in the middle? What's the main idea? Verse 14. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. Verse 15, rather. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. This is the Hebrew word for righteousness. That God is perfectly righteous. And it's against the righteousness of God that Israel has sinned. What's the main idea? I have been disloyal to you. So by taking the main idea of each of these four poetic sections, well thought out by Ezra and given an inspired text, we're left with this overriding heart of confession. This is confession. I am fully guilty. I deserve your discipline. I have been loyal to sin and I have been disloyal to you. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 addresses this dynamic of the Christian being disloyal, of acting like an unbeliever, being loyal to sin, disloyal to God. He says this in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17, Now I say, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, you are a theologically astute church, and you might be saying, wait a minute. That's not really a fair comparison. The people in Ezra's day 
didn't enjoy the benefits of the new covenant. It was the old covenant they were violating. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the fruit of the Spirit. They didn't have the power to stop themselves from this sin. And so you might protest. I have three words in reply to that protest. Exactly. Exactly. Do you remember what one of the purposes of Ezra and Nehemiah is? It's to propel us forward to the new covenant. To say the old covenant is insufficient to change the hearts of men. The God's people are looking to the day predicted in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. That's the heart of confession. There's one more property of confession. We've seen the preparation, the detail, the heart of confession. I'd like to end as practically as we can and spend the rest of our time on this because you might be asking the question, okay, how do I pray a prayer of confession? How do I do that? So our last property, we'll call this the themes of confession. What are the themes of confession? What are the overarching subjects in this prayer? How can I learn to pray with this level of sobriety and clarity of confession to the Lord? Well, we could identify six major themes in this prayer, and they're, they're themes simply because they're repeated over and over again. And if these are at the forefront, then you too can pray like Ezra. The first theme is God. God is the theme. Verse 6, oh my God, my God. Verse 8, the Lord our God, our God. Verse 9, our God, our God. Verse 10, our God. Verse 13, our God. Verse 15, oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. And we have to start there because confession of sin is about God's offense, not so much about how badly you feel about sinning, although that's a natural consequence. Confession is not about, God, I feel so bad about this. That's not about, confession isn't about you, it's about God. And the fact that you've thrown his grace back in his face. It's an acknowledgement that God is the violated party. God is the offended person. God is the first theme. The second theme is sin. Sin is the second theme. The covenant disloyalty of breaking God's commandment. Verse 6, our iniquities. Verse 7, our iniquities. Verse 10, we have forsaken your commandments. Verse 13, our evil deeds. Verse 14, shall we break your commandments again? As believers in Christ, we are under the new covenant. And as such, we are under the law of the new covenant. The law of Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Confession is not, God, I've made some mistakes. Confession is not, God, I've gotten slightly off track. Confession is not, Lord, I, I messed up. Confession is not, I made an error in judgment. No, confession is, I have sinned. The third theme the theme of guilt. Verse 6, our guilt. Verse 7, our great guilt. Verse 13, our great guilt. Verse 15, our guilt. None can stand before you because of this. Because of what? Because of our guilt. We could argue that the very last thought in Ezra's confession is that of guilt. Now, let me correct a misconception we have about guilt. Guilt is not the feeling you have when you sin. Guilt is the legal standing before God as having violated his holiness and been exposed dead to rights. That's guilt. It's judicial guilt. There's a fourth theme, shame. 
shame. Now, this doesn't appear as often as the other themes, but it sure highlights the beginning of the prayer. Verse 6, I am ashamed. I blush to lift my face to you. Verse 7, our utter shame. Now, what does that tell us? It tells me as a believer in Christ, it tells you as a believer in Christ to beware of a hardened heart against your own sin. Yes, Romans 8 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's speaking of the fact that no judicial action will ever be taken against you by God in eternal judgment. But it's not an excuse to minimize and gloss over sin. You don't sin and go, whew, it's a good thing I'm covered. Someone might say, but I don't want to feel ashamed of my sin all the time. Nobody does. I have two answers to that. First of all, then start taking your own sin more seriously. If you don't want to feel ashamed of sin, then start sinning less. You have the power of God. You have the word of God. You have the spirit of God. You have the people of God. What more do you need? And the second answer I would have to that, if you're scared of feeling shame all the time or if you're experiencing shame all the time, could I very humbly suggest that it may be that you're feeling shame because you're not confessing sin enough? Because what does confession do? It removes shame. It takes it away. Or if I could put it this way, let Jesus wash your feet every day. The fifth theme, witness. And you would think, well, isn't that enough? We've talked about sin, guilt, and shame. Witness. The failed mission of presenting to the world a faithful witness of what a follower of God looks like. Look back with me at chapter 9, verse 1. I want to point something out to you. Chapter 9, verse 1, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And it gives a list. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Now, I read you this list to point something out. This is not a contemporary list of nations in Ezra's day. This is an old list. This is an outdated list. There have been no Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, or Amorites for hundreds of years. Five out of the eight aren't even there anymore. So why use an old list to accuse the Jews of mixing with the peoples and the false religions of the land? It's a way of saying they're still doing it just like they did hundreds of years earlier. They're still not separating themselves. Why is this so terrible? This is terrible because Israel's mission, the entire reason they exist, is to be a mission, a witness to the world that there is a God who forgives sin and has set apart a holy people by whom the world can hear about this God. In fact, Moses predicted that Israel would have to explain to a watching world why they're ashamed of themselves. Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, beginning in verse 22, And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing so sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? 
Then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. Is this something we can relate to? I can say three words and you can relate to this. Southern Baptist Convention. The world is watching and they ought to be ashamed. If you offered Grace Bible Church a billion dollars to join the SBC, I wouldn't do it. Because it's shameful that the world is going, boy, the Christians can't get their act together. Your witness is done. And in Ezra's prayer, we see this theme that he's acknowledging that they have failed in their witness. Verse 7, Israel is chosen, is the chosen nation of God. They've been given over to foreign kings in shame. Boy, in Solomon's day, all the foreign kings came to Israel. Now Israel has been taken away. Verse 9, the kings of Persia had to witness this small little tiny restoration, a small remnant, 40 or 50,000. And you say, well, that sounds like a lot of people, not compared to the 3 million that left Egypt. And even though God was showing kindness, it's still a, a humiliating thing. Israel couldn't say, we are the chosen nation of the one true and living God. While the king of Persia had to give them written permission to return home. Verse 12, God, God's command to not seek the peace of, and the prosperity of the surrounding nations doesn't mean to not have a concern for them, but rather to be a kingdom of priests to point them to God. And instead, Israel became like them instead of encouraging those nations to seek the true and living God. This is serious stuff. The themes of God and sin and guilt and shame and a failed witness. But there's one more theme. It's embedded in the prayer, and yet it's clearly here, and it overwhelms all the others except for the theme of God. And that is the theme of grace. It's here. Verse 8, the favor of the Lord has been granted. Verse 8, a preserved remnant of God's people. Verse 8, God has brightened their eyes. Verse 8, God has granted a little reviving. Verse 9, God has not forsaken us. Verse 9, God has extended his steadfast love, his chesed love, his loving kindness and merciful favor. Verse 9, they were granted some reviving. Verse 9, the peg, a place to be put in safety. Verse 9, the wall, like a vineyard wall, a return to home and country. Verse 13, Israel was punished less than their sins deserved and given a remnant. Verse 15, we have a remnant left still. So much grace. Now we've pointed out all along that Ezra hasn't made a direct request, but in 10 short verses, he references the grace of God 11 times. That's not a direct request, but that's a pretty smart prayer. What a great example we take from Ezra in his total humility in his prayer. He didn't make a single request. But there is an implied hope, at least. The question in verse 14, wondering if God will be so angry that he would consume even the remnant. That's a bit of a trick question thrown graciously to God. Will you consume the remnant? Ezra knew the answer. 
The answer is a gracious answer. What's the answer to that question? The answer to that question is found in Genesis 17. You don't have to turn there. Here's the answer. God told Abraham in Genesis 17, beginning in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You see, even when Israel is guilty of covenant disloyalty, God never will be. And while he may discipline at massive levels for hundreds of years, he will never forsake his promise to Abraham. And I have to believe that Ezra, who was an expert in the Torah, the teacher of the law, the premier expert in Torah, knew Genesis 17. And so when he asks God, will you forsake us? Will you destroy us because of this? He knew the answer, no. So there's no request, but there is a reminder of the grace of God. And for you as new covenant believers, what should your confession include? We have even more that our confession can include. It should include the new covenant knowledge that you're guaranteed forgiveness and restoration of relationship with the Lord. Your new covenant confession should include Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It should include 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What marvelous grace God has towards us. But never make this mistake. Never make the mistake of thinking that somehow God is less angry with sin now in the church age than he was in Ezra's day. Yes, through Christ, forgiveness is always yours, even in the midst of severe discipline that the Lord may bring. But when you confess, never confess sin like it's easily forgiven or that your sin is no big deal. Never forget, never forget, never forget that your forgiveness cost the Son of God his life. And so we're never flippant about confession. you are most definitely permitted to ask for forgiveness. And as Christians, you are guaranteed judicial forgiveness. But don't rush through the process of facing the reality of sin. So I have an obvious and a serious question for you. When was the last time that you prepared to confess to the Lord and that you took your time doing so in great preparation and sobriety and with this attitude I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying with resolution. You are clean in the record books of heaven if you know Christ, and we praise the Lord for that. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life if you belong to Christ. But could I say this? Have Christ wash your feet every day. Have him wash your feet every day. Let's pray together. Our Father, I don't know how we would even really preach this message without the knowledge of the new covenant, the security that we have in Christ, that the Lord knows his own and calls them to himself, that you have 
elected us from the foundation of the world, that we have been made new creations in Christ and that can never be undone, that while we are called to persevere in the faith, we are also told that we will be preserved in our faith. Because with that knowledge, we have more confidence then to humbly confess our sin to you, not to gain salvation, but because we have salvation. And Lord, we would confess together that perhaps overthinking the new covenant at times has maybe made us a little bit flippant when it comes to acknowledging sin. That we certainly don't want to walk around with a guilty conscience every day. There is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But neither do we ignore confession of sin. How heinous it is, how heretical it is to say that the Christian never need worry about his sin again. Apostle John even says, the one who says he doesn't sin is deceiving himself. And so, Lord, we would bathe in your grace, we would bask in your kindness, we would cling to the cross, but we would remember that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that the believers here at Grace Bible Church would be characterized as those who while enjoying the glorious grace of our Savior are those who sink to their knees with empty hands and torn garments as it were grieved over our failures and our sins against you And by those times of confession, we would be motivated, we would be empowered by the Spirit, Lord, to grow in our Christ-likeness, to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, also that we might honor the head of the church, never throw his grace back at him, but so we might honor him with our lives, Lord. Help us to grow in Christ-likeness through this time, we pray in Christ's name, amen.